0: And they will hand you a divinely inspired blue Bible, if you would let them know, because you get extra credit from opening your own Bible, as opposed to looking at the words on the screen. Jesus will love you more. (sighs) So not true. So not true. Ephesians chapter, now, my assumption is that you hear the messages that are preached in this place, and that you savor them all week. That you take notes and you dream about them. You reference. Is anyone paying attention? Because it's so compelling. And, and because I know that's not true, I want to remind you every now and again, go back and listen to the first message we did in this series, podcasts or go online or whatever. Because it is so foundational to every building block we're establishing since then. The first three chapters Of Ephesians, Paul tells us what Christ has done and therefore who we are. And then the invitation of the second part of Ephesians is to live up to what's already true of us. In the same way I was declared a husband before I knew what it was to be one, Right in the same way uh, you are declared saint, you are declared uh, chosen and loved and adopted and blessed, and all these kind of epic concepts. And then Paul in chapter 4 will say, live up to what is already true of you. It isn't legalism, it's not performance, it's not moralism, it's not religiousness, it's gospel, it's grace. So we're looking at different parts of what Paul says are true of those in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, if you're new to the Bible, this is one of the reasons why you won't like it. Um, This passage is really thick, and it's one of those deals we're going to have to spend a little time on. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse, let's go second part of verse 19, just because we can. Paul is praying over this community, and he says that power is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And here's where it gets a little funky. And God placed all things under the feet of Jesus... And appointed Jesus to be head over everything. And then he adds this sentence. For the church. And then he describes the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now is that the sentence you think of when you think of the word church? Not even remotely. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now. The next five minutes are going to be painful because I've got to do some background. You may be thinking the last five minutes were painful, in which case it will just intensify. The painfulness. The concept of fullness that Paul is using, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The concept of fullness is related to an Old, Co- Old Testament concept, uh, the concept of glory. The word glory can also be the word Completion. Uh, fullness can also be completion. In the Old Testament, it teaches that God exists everywhere, right? Yes. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, yes. In the Old Testament, God exists everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory, is the idea. But there were certain circumstances under which God would reveal his presence. Now, you and I sometimes will use language like this. Hey, it was this great thing, and then God showed up. Is that theologically accurate? No. Who who showed up? We did. God was already there. Have you ever heard missionaries say, we're going to take Jesus to this place? Jesus is already there. (laughs) We're the ones who have the privilege of participating in his work, right? So he's everywhere. But in the Old Testament, there was a concept called the Shekinah Glory of God. Or for those of you from a more Pentecostal background, Shekinah is how they say it. The she- I call Shekinah. Shekinah, glory of God. Now, the idea is that though God exists everywhere, there were times he would manifest his presence so that you could tell he was there. Whether it was a burning bush, or whether his glory filled the tabernacle or the temple, there were times he would reveal the fact that he was there, though everyone knew in theory he was everywhere. That's called his manifest glory or his Shekinah glory when human beings who are very weak and very frail could see, oh yes, God's here in this place, all right? Paul is borrowing from that concept in the Old Testament and pulling it forward, and here's what he's saying. God fills Jesus. In fact, in Colossians, he'll say, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells. God fills Jesus, Jesus fills his church, and his church fills the world. In other words, what Paul is saying when he writes, and God placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, and then here's the description of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, The idea is that concept of God revealing his presence, God reveals his presence and fills Christ, Christ reveals his presence and fills the church, and then the church fills the world, revealing the presence of God in it, even though God exists everywhere. Are you tracking with me so far? Right? It's a little thick. Now... To to push this forward a little bit, I want us to go to the book of Genesis, and we're going to do a jet tour through the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, things are good. Paradise lasts for all of two chapters. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve screw it up for all of us. And the first thing they do when they rebel and they sin, they don't go rob a bank. They don't go carjack, you know, a Lamborghini. They they hide from God. And so there's this interesting passage, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. I have no idea what exactly that means. As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man... Where are you? Now, does God know everything? Did he know where the man was? Yes. I find it fascinating. Now stick with me here. In Genesis 1, god we meet God and literally his existence isn't argued for. It's just in the beginning God. And he speaks the universe into existence. That's how powerful he is. Let there be light. Bam, there's light. In Genesis 2, God is now kind of a sculptor. He takes a lump of dirt and forms him into man. He takes part of man, forms woman. I mean, he's the sculptor and artist, and he, he nestles Adam and Eve into this garden called Eden. And that's all we know about him, is that he's intelligent, he's purposeful, he's powerful. And so the first real relational image we're given of God is of that almighty creator condescending to search for his creation, even though he knew exactly where they were. The thread of the Bible isn't of a God who waits for us to get our acts together, but of a God who goes seeking after things that are hidden. Of a God that goes seeking after people. They've already sinned, they've fractured their fellowship with him. They are certainly worthy of wrath and judgment at this point. And what's the image we get of God right out of the gate? A God who asks, where are you? I mean the invitation is to share where you are and come out of hiding. The image that God that is presented here is of a God who seeks after us even when we hide. And the predominant thread of the Bible isn't of a God who wants to zap the faithful up, but it's a God who wants to come down. Go if you would to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. So God after Genesis 3 God begins the work of redemption. In Genesis 12, he calls a man named Abram. And he says, through Abraham as we know him, I will build Abraham into a great nation, and through that nation will come one who will bless the whole world. And this nation is rescued out of slavery hundreds of years later, brought to the foot of a mountain where they become the covenant people of God, where they are given obligations now, and their charge, their job description, is to be people that put God on display. And then he says, chapter 25, verse 8, Then have Israel make a sanctuary for me, and I will what? Dwell among them. See, that doesn't sound like a lot to us, but this, this is revolutionary. The idea of a God who, creative, awesome, majestic, holy, and yet is looking for a people in whom and through whom to dwell. The, story, the, the Bible isn't a story of our searching for God. It's a story of God searching for us. And that's the difference between religiousness and gospel. Religiousness is our quest for God, our working for the divine. Gospel is God condescending to come down, looking for a people in whom to dwell. Go if you would to Leviticus. Just because, when was the last time you were in Leviticus? Probably not for a while. Leviticus chapter 26. You see this over and over and over. How great is your sister? Sister? Girl a boy. Girlfriend. I like how she's doing all the work and you're just kind of looking over her shoulder. I like that. May that be a pattern for your marriage?") <clears throat> What's that? My wife said, "May that not be a pattern for our marriage. Sorry, my wife was here to uh, hear that comment. (laughs) Leviticus 26, (laughs) verse 11. (laughs) Right, you see this over and over and over and over. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you. You have to understand, from the very earliest parts of the Bible, God has been looking for a people to dwell among. And that those people would be people that would put Him on display. His plan to redeem humanity involved other human beings. He would dwell among them. They would put Him on display. That was the plan. And so, when you start reading in Ephesians about fullness, I mean, this is the culmination of that stuff. Go to John chapter 1. Oh, yes. John chapter 1. You guys hanging in there? All right. There are seven of us. I'm very excited. That's six more than last service. John, and do you know how hard it is for me to focus when I got my wife's sheer foxiness in the front row? I mean, do you understand? If you're here and you're kind of chunky... And maybe you're losing your hair, and you're wondering, gee, is there hope for me? Would a beautiful, godly woman ever fall in love with me? God does still do miracles. Can we get an amen? And here's what she says to me, right? I'm not sure you want to hear this, gentlemen, but she says, your personality makes you more attractive. And I... I had to really seek God to determine if that was a compliment or not, but I just want to be foxy. I just want to be studly. Instead, I'm kind of marshmallowy, but it's all right. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. So this is a title referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. It's passages like this that lead us into the idea of a trinity. That there is a one God that exists in three persons. And so this Word is with God and was God all at the same time. Now, what's interesting though is what this Word does. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His Dwelling. Among us, do you see a theme? God saying... Okay, I've led my people through a cloud. I've led my people through a pillar of fire. I've led my people at this top of Mount Sinai through smoke and lightning and fire and thunder. And now he says, I'm not close enough, so have them build me a sanctuary. Uh, And and they travel around with it, and then they get into the promised land. Have them build me a temple, and he dwells there each time. His fullness dwells tangibly, manifestly, so that everyone knew he was there, although everyone also knew he existed everywhere. But that wasn't close enough. Now this creator takes on flesh. It's like the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In a way, I mean, Jesus was the exact representation of God's being. He was the visible form of the invisible God. He was the Shekinah glory of God manifest in human form. And then notice what he does in John 14. Flip over there. He's talking to his fellows. last night that, um, before he was betrayed, and he says, I've got good news and bad news. Bad news, I'm going to be crucified, put to death, and then ultimately ascend to the Father. They're freaking out. But he says, I've got good news. He says, verse uh, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you an, another advocate. And the phrasing here means another, another somebody just like me. To help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be what? In you. So you have God seeking out Adam and Eve as they were hiding. You have a God who redeems a community and then says, I want to dwell among you. Build me a tent. Then build me a temple. Then the God who created flesh takes flesh and dwells among His people and then says to His followers, I will now dwell, not just among you, not just around you, in you. So when you go back to Ephesians chapter one, and you read, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, you can understand now what we're talking about. God fills Jesus. Jesus, through his spirit, fills his church. And what's his church do? Fills the world. That's the idea. In fact, he broadens the image. Go to Ephesians 2. Go to verse 19. I know it's lots of of Bible work today, guys. I'm sorry. It's just too much Bible. I apologize. We just... Ephesians 2, chapter 19. Consequently, Paul writes. He's writing to non-Jewish people. He says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers... But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a what? Holy temple. And in him, you, plural, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, To me, this is a little mind-blowing. Christ, excuse me, God fills Christ, Christ fills his church, his church fills the world. Paul says, okay, in Christ, we are the temple, the literal dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell? In his church. Is he everywhere? Of course he's everywhere. Does he work beyond his church? Oh, hallelujah, he works beyond his church, or we'd be in trouble, But his manifest presence is revealed in and through his church, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So that Paul will say, when this was written 2,000 years ago, he's writing to a church of maybe 20, 30 people, outcasts, cast-offs, people at the margins of society. And he looks at them and he says, you're a temple. Now, you have to understand, in the first century, in Ephesus, where this letter was going to, in Ephesus, they already had a temple, Their goddess was the goddess Artemis. We met her last week. Artemis was the protector. She was the provider. A million people would come from all over the world to worship and celebrate her during a month-long festival in her honor. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, placed on 70,000 acres of land, a hundred columns, 60 feet high and six feet thick decorated her temple. I mean, here's some pictures. Go ahead and fire it up. This is what we think it could have looked like. Next. This was majestic. In Ephesus, this is what you would have thought of when you heard the word temple. There's the beautiful Artemis all the way down there at the bottom. Next. I mean, literally, ancient poets would write about this as the dwelling place of the gods. It was this majestic. Next, they'd have coins, where the temple image would be on it. Next. Here it is today. <laughs> they had it to dig down 20 feet just to find those columns. Now, think about this, men and women. Think about this. You're in a little church of 20 or 30 people. Slaves, women, children, people that weren't highly valued in Roman culture made up of the bulk of this crew. The Greek worldview, which only valued the strong and the perfect, held sway. The Roman Empire was at its zenith in power and glory. You live in a city that is world-renowned for the temple that dominates its landscape. And this crazy missionary writes a letter to you and says, you are the temple of the living God. And you know how we know he's right? There was the temple of Artemis today, and here's the temple of God today. Do you understand what Paul is saying is that the idea of a church isn't some random, like, well, Israel screwed up, so we got to try something new, It has been the desire of God from the very beginning to call out of human history a people for Himself to dwell in and to dwell through and in so doing invite the nations to repentance and salvation. And that this collection of people who don't have much in common, ethnically, philosophically, politically, socioeconomically, are, in virtue of their being in Christ, carved and shaped and formed into being the dwelling place, the manifest fullness of God on earth. Now that sounds a bit better then, hey, we meet once a week at 10 o'clock. Hope you can join us. Right? Now, I'm going to get a little intense because I want to apply this to our church context. There are two different ways of understanding church. Fire up the chart. Now, don't write this down, brothers and sisters. If you want it, email me, and I will make sure someone sends it to you. The implication being, of course, I have far more important things to do than send you my chart. I am the writer of charts. I'm not the distributor of charts. Now, I'm just teasing. If you're new and you're going, that is a very common reaction. I want to contrast two different understandings of church. The first understanding of church is something I'm going to call the functional view of church. And it's the idea that the church exists on earth to do certain things perform certain functions, right? People need a place to be discipled and to learn the Bible. Great, they go to church. People need a place to raise up their children in the faith. Great, they go to church. People need uh, to know what Christian marriage is. Great, they go to church. Okay? Is that true? Yeah. But it is very incomplete. Because we're to contrast it with something I'm going to call the incarnational view of the church, which is exactly what Paul's saying. The church is the dwelling place. Place of God now think about the implications for a second alright and this is going to get real practical and uncomfortable really quick if you focus on the functions of a church then your natural focus is on the programs of the church that are supposed to meet those functions right well the church has to get together so we have a Sunday morning program and you, you got to like train people for marriage so you do premarital programs and you got to disciple the kids so we have youth programs I mean And and we're fans of programs. We've got programs. But if you really understand the church as being the dwelling place of God, the issue isn't programs. The issue is what? Presence. Is God here? Are we being the kind of people in whom and through whom God can dwell in His fullness? Understand, you receive the Holy Spirit when you are in Christ. Immediately, you are given the gift of the Spirit. But then, later in Ephesians, Paul will write to people who already have the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, the concept of God's fullness is meant to be gradually and increasingly more on display in you. Now, hold on a second. That almost sounded like feedback. (laughs) Glenn, love you. Who? I don't know anybody here who wants to be a part of something that's totally explainable. I don't know anybody here that wants to be a part of something that you can just chalk it up to human ingenuity or human technology or human credibility. I don't know anybody who wants to be a part of something that isn't transcendent in some way, shape, or form. And if we really are the dwelling place of God, my goodness, wouldn't you imagine every now and again the supernatural might actually break out? Wouldn't you imagine? And far we, we don't even expect it anymore. Because we just think this is a program. I don't want programs. You have enough going on. Who wants to be a part of this? We're supposed to be people who pursue the presence of God in us. And the only reason the programs exist is to facilitate that. If you're focused on programs... You just have a functional understanding. We want to focus on God's presence in the programs. Hallelujah for the programs. Of course we have programs. But they're never the point. If you focus on programs, what's the key question? How good are they? How are they doing? How many people come to them? Are they effective? And those are fine questions. But are they the most important questions? Brothers and sisters... May I suggest to you that one of the reasons why the spirit of God is doing his best work in places other than America is because far too many of us come in fold our arms and evaluate a church in the same way we'd evaluate the movie that the movies that used to be shown in this old theater and that a demonic the most demonic question you can ask of a church is did i like it because it ain't for you and i'm telling you what jesus of nazareth does not care if you like it there are people in the third world who will sing and dance for hours today under the threat of persecution without comfy chairs without motor vehicles without air conditioning and child care there are people who will sing and dance and praise God in the midst of tragedy and suffering that we physically cannot even conceive of. And we sit and worry about how the band sounded or whether the preacher was funny. I am telling you one of the reasons why God has left the building in the American church is because we've turned it into a place of consumption of religious goods and services. You come into a movie theater and you say, how do you evaluate a movie? Did I like it? Was it good? Was I moved? Right? Was it worth the time, effort, and money? And we come in and we do the same thing here. Now, unless you think I'm banging away at you, oh no, I do it even more. Because I'll sit and go, well, hey, Justy, how'd I do? (laughs) How was it? And, and, the, and it, we're not saying it's wrong to have preferences. I have preferences. I will always choose grunge over country. Always. I will choose football over every other sport that ever has existed. And I mean American football. I don't mean this European flopping stuff that you do. I will take loud and I will take electric over banjo any day of the week. But the minute that inhibits my willingness to worship the God who saved me, I have ceased making it about him, and it is now all about me. Brothers and sisters, the questions we ask about the gathering are things like Was Jesus worshiped? Was his gospel preached? was his word studied. And that can be done anywhere. See, when you have a functional understanding of the church, you go to church. Because the church is the place where you do the things, right? Incarnational understanding of the church is, no, 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 no. You are the church. And the church gathers in an old theater. 10 o'clock. Anything sacred about the theater? Nope. There's a church here before us. There may be a church here after us. Nothing sacred about the theater. What's sacred is that the people filled with Christ, filled with God, who fill the world and manifest His presence. When you look at programs... All you can do is evaluate according to participation. Very often, here's what the church will say. And I'm a fan of church, and I'm beating me up. Hey, discipleship to Jesus means attendance to church programs. That is false. And that is horribly, tragically false. Discipleship to Jesus means You drive to the glory of God. You work to the glory of God. You live to the glory of God. You play to the glory of God. You date to the glory of God. You spend to the glory of God. I mean, your whole life is his. And if church programs don't help you be the minister, ambassador, missionary that you're to be in your real life, well, then they're useless. They really are. You don't get brownie points for them. If we did, I would get a lot. So we're not, in, we're not interested in participation. What are we interested in? Transformation. I mean, if we really are the dwelling place of God, you would think someone should be able to tell. You would think there should be some difference about the way Jesus' followers live and marry and work and play than the way the rest of the world does. Our hypocrisy is what robs us of any moral authority to preach the good news anymore. Because there is no difference. Oh, is it hurting yet? Man. Are you more loving than you were six months ago? Isn't that the question? I mean, I... I, All right, I'm just going to start confessing stuff because you think I'm beating up on you. I have preached... Majestic, homiletical, exegetical, hermeneutical masterpieces (laughs) that have fallen to the floor with such a thud. I have preached nonsensical, immaterial, and irrational pieces of verbiage that have been filled by God and have been utterly transformative to the place where I now realize my job is no longer to perform for you. It's just to be faithful. And that the worst thing a church could ever be called is entertaining. That's why we don't care if we, like, our speaker system's down. They were, everyone was freaking out. Hey, your speaker system's down. Are we gonna, who cares? Like, seriously, we don't want people that it would matter that our speaker system's down. Because we'll do a banjo, for crying out loud. If you can worship God in a banjo, you can do anything. So we want to move from a posture of performing and evaluating to what? Seeking and expecting. Now, I don't know about you, this is slightly challenging. Do you agree? Because the goal I mean, do you understand the reason we worry about sin in here isn't because, well, man, we've let God down and we've got to somehow make it up to him. Or, man, you know, he's really disappointed in me today. No! The reason we worry about sin is because it quenches and grieves the Holy Spirit. Do you understand when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit? He's saying, be filled with the fullness of God's Holy Spirit and to quench his spirit and to grieve his spirit. Doesn't mean the Spirit leaves, but it means the Spirit is not living in fullness in you. And those are relational concepts. And so the reason it matters how you talk to your spouse is because I want my marriage to be the place where God dwells in his fullness. And the reason it matters how I treat my coworkers is because I want my workplace, even in cubicle land, I want that to be a place where the living God is welcome in all of his fullness, in and through me. And when we gather as the church in a theater, we want to see him in more of his fullness. Would you agree? Everything is secondary to that. Everything. What the world needs from us isn't to look more like it. So the world entertains, hey, let's us entertain. Hey, the world does this cute stuff, let's us do this cute stuff. What the world needs is for the church to be the church. Which is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And if people would actually get around the church, and instead of being turned off by our hypocrisy, they would wake up to the idea that God is real, because there are hundreds of us in this room that would testify to his reality in our lives. Not as people who didn't have anything better to do, but as people who have met the risen Jesus. I want to be part of that. You can't be tearing up. Oh, you're not tearing up, you're cold. Then let us stand together. My wife is cold. I was tearing up under the mistaken assumption she was tearing up. However, I still think my tearing was legit. We're going to celebrate communion together, brothers and sisters. This is the greatest testimony of the reality of the risen Jesus among us. And so uh, if you're new to church, if you're new to Jesus, and you've somehow managed to stay with us this far, do not feel any pressure as plates come around with bread and juice in them to take if you would not like to. No one keeps track at the ends of the rows about how many cups of juice were taken. Let that go by but for the rest of us would you close your eyes for just a moment I don't know about you but this this whole deal is slightly convicting and so maybe if you're a follower of Jesus there's just a bit of repentance maybe there's some things that you've not taken seriously in your own life there's some places where the spirit has been quenched and the spirit has been grieved or maybe you've Just missed the idea that somehow you are the dwelling place of God, the way you treat yourself, the sins that you engage in. Maybe you've just missed that whole idea that part of the reason this matters is because there is a God who comes and wants to dwell in all of his fullness in you. And maybe for some of us, our preferences have become our demands and our idols. And we just want to repent of those. We want to be people that will worship Jesus any time, any place, for any reason. So, would you make this your prayer? Come, Lord, Jesus, come. Help me out here, I can't sing well. Come, Lord, Jesus, come. Let's sing it several times. Come, we're praying it. Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. One more. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And Lord, we recognize that You've come You came 2,000 years ago. You will come again, and you come now. And so we receive by faith the Lord's Supper that reminds us that you were and are real. And that your death was sufficient for our life. And that you now sit at the right hand of the Father putting things under your feet And that in some strange way that just is mind-blowing to us, we get to participate in the revelation of your presence to the world. So have mercy on us sinners. Have mercy on us saints. We're going to worship together while the ushers come forward and hand out the elements. Would you take some bread and would you take a cup of juice? And then would you just hold them so we could celebrate together?